the Polycystic Ovarian Syndrome Symposium will be held in Sydney on Sunday the 16th of September 2018. This ATMS special event will bring together five diversely qualified speakers offering new insights into diagnosis and treatment of PCOS. For more information and to book your tickets, please go to atms.com.au and click on the events tab. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining me on the line today is beach volleyball Olympian, naturopath, mum and sports scientist, Nicole Hannon, who is currently also studying her Masters of Medical Research at Griffith University's School of Pharmacy. In other words, she has no life. Her interest lies in not just gut and allergic disease, but also thyroid issues, and interestingly, the stress of high achievers, but specifically, Nicole's passion is the treatment of eosinophilic esophagitis, EOE. Nicole's treatment encompasses the physical and emotional impact of EOE, but importantly, the financial impact rallied on patients, families and caregivers, including perceived efficacy of treatment and satisfaction with patient care using both conventional and complementary medicines. Welcome to FX Medicine, Nicole, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you so much for having me. It and is... congratulations on saying eosinophilic esophagitis <laughs> without even a hint. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Five hours of practice beforehand. Don't worry about that. <laughs> Nicole... EOE is much easier. <laughs> yeah. e- EOE is a heck of a lot easier. Um, once you know about this term, I knew nothing about this term a month ago. But you've got a very interesting career. Before we delve into EOE and its, its treatment, Can you tell our listeners first about where you started and where your interest in natural medicines began? Okay, so I guess you you mentioned it in my introduction. Um, I was an athlete for a long time. I played beach volleyball for Australia for many years. I won't say how many because that will make me sound really (laughs) old, but... um, and during that time, I was always really interested in natural therapies, and I have have been since I was a, a kid. Really, mm. um, my grandparents and parents have all had an, an interest in natural therapies. So, um, I went from beach volleyball and um, started my training as a naturopath while I was still competing and had an injury, and just went from there really. And then I had a break um, when I had my daughter. And my daughter actually has EOE. And so that's where my interest came with EOE, obviously living um, quite a crazy journey um, of parenthood that wasn't as expected. And really, interestingly enough, I was very – I loved working with allergy and gut before I had my daughter. And so she sort of came to the perfect mum, I think. (laughs) Um, And I ended ended up learning about this disease that I'd never heard of before. Yeah. And um, when when she was first diagnosed, we just got told, oh, it's EOE, it's, you know, just Google it, it's like asthma of the esophagus, go ahead and um, she'll be right sort of thing. And um, once we learn a bit more about it, we realise that that is absolutely not the case and it's quite a... Um, 
quite a crazy disease to have to live with. And I guess my aim now with my career is to use the knowledge I have as a naturopath and as a mum having lived this this last almost eight years um, of experience with this disease and having made so many contacts and helped so many other people is to just do further research Mm. because there's not enough known about this and not enough people are aware aware of this disease. So where I'm looking at, I'm finishing my master's hopefully next year and then if all goes to plan and I don't go insane from um, <laughs> from the research side of things, then my my aim is to look further into a PhD and, and do more research and hopefully that will end up with clinical trials with some natural therapies and interventions to help, with pe- help people who are living with condition. Well, I've got to say, n- not just because of need, but also your uh, your acumen to or y- your ability to make complex points crystal clear. Um, you recently won the uh, award for the talk, the best talk at the NHAA conference in Australia. That's the National, uh, sorry, Naturopaths and Herbalists Association of Australia, NHAA. So well done on that. And I've got to say, that's an amazing clear talk very well done thank you thank you very much it was it was from the heart i think when things are from the heart yes <laughs> you really want to get your point across it was really That's fun right. uh, putting that all together because it's a message that i've been wanting to get across to practitioners for a very long time and i it was amazing it was really it was such a great experience to be able to get up there and, and share the story and and help other people to understand this disease. So I've got to then ask the question, what is eosinophilic esophagitis? What's its pathological process? Okay. Um, EOE is a chronic antigen-driven inflammatory gastrointestinal disorder. So basically, um, the esophagus is only one type of eosinophilic disorder. Um, So there's as a whole, they're known as eosinophilic gastrointestinal disorders. And depending on what part of the gastrointestinal tract they affect, um, that will be the name of the disease. So eosinophilic esophagitis obviously affects the esophagus. You can have eosinophilic gastritis, so it affects the stomach, um, duodenitis, colitis, etc. So um, the esophagus is the most common form of this disease. And a lot of people do have more than one. And when that, when they do have that, it's called uh, eosinophilic enteritis, sorry, gastroenteritis. Wow. Right. Um, How does yeah, that differ, so though, from true autoimmune? How, sorry to cut you off. How does that differ, That's though, okay. from true autoimmune disease? Like when do you, when do you start to look into or diagnose um, or get the diagnosis of a, an autoimmune condition? Like Crohn's? So AOE is not an autoimmune disease. Right. It is an antigen-driven inflammatory mm. disease. Um, there, the antigens can be many. It, it can be one or it can be many. Yeah. Uh, it can be food. It can be chemical. It can be environmental. And environmental triggers are very common, but food is the most common. Um, 90% of people who have AOE clear up with a specific type of elimination diet. 
Um, it's the other 10% that who that have issues with the chemical and the environmental triggers or that diet hasn't covered everything. Um, but I think that my personal feeling is that that number is probably going to change because I think a lot more people are getting a lot more sensitive. So I think down the track we're probably not going to be looking at a 90% remission rate just from a top eight elimination diet. But yeah. I guess we can get to that later on. <laughs> and, uh, so what's it, um, it, What's the prevalence at the moment? What's it purported to be? And, it, and is that correct or is it just underreported? Look, um, that's sort of a can of worms, I guess, to open. Um, the, the prevalence is stated differently or everywhere. Like all the research I read, there are, there are different numbers as to what they're saying the prevalence is. Um, the most common that I have found is about 10 years ago, they were saying it was about 1 in 10,000. Now they're saying it's between, uh, sorry, it was 1 to 4 in 10,000. And now we're looking at about 1 in 2,000 in a lot of the literature that I've um, looked at. But having said that, some are actually reporting it as high as 1.1 to 2% of the population, which is alarming. And I don't know how accurate that one is, but um, even that it could be close to that is is quite alarming. And I think I'd mentioned to you before that in Crohn's disease, there was a study that tested, um, did biopsies of the esophagus for Crohn's disease patients. And they found that 10% of people with Crohn's disease also had eosinophilic esophagitis when they were looking for it. And these weren't people that were necessarily exhibiting symptoms. Yeah. So what are the major presenting symptoms and how how would they differently manifest? If it's an antigen-driven inflammatory disease from multiple causations, do you get a wide variation of presentations depending on you know whether they're sensitive to food or environmental issues? You do, you do, absolutely. So um, I guess I should go back and I, I don't think I properly answered your question before, but I think um, the important thing to note is that the main um, pathophysiological mechanism here is that when exposed to an antigen, the body sends masses of eosinophils to the gastrointestinal tract. Right, yeah. And so what we're looking at is big clumps of eosinophils in the mucosa of the gastrointestinal tract and in EOE, it's in the esophagus. Okay, so what about um, etiological factors and comorbidities with EOE? So EOE is more common in males, and that's shown in every study I've ever read, Mm. Um, and they don't know why. It has a very strong genetic or familial association. So around 10% of um, parents of EOE patients have a history of some sort of esophageal um, restructuring of the esophagus. And in those who have been biopsied, about 8% of them have biopsy-proven EOE. So there is a strong strong familial thing there. Um, This is interesting. In siblings with EOE, so... If you have two children and one of them has a diagnosed case of AOE, that other child is 80 times more likely to have AOE. Wow. So, and I, I see it very often. I'll see siblings who are, who are diagnosed. Um, and actually, remind me to tell you about the reactions with that later on because that's quite an interesting. One. Okay. Um, are, are we talking about a, a dominant trait then here? They don't know exactly. They haven't like, like isolated exactly what it is, but gotcha. they know that there is a very strong, very strong genetic wow. um, likelihood of having EOE if you have a family member who has EOE. 
and it's very common in atopic families. Right. So uh, if you have an atopic disease, then you are much more likely to have EOE. So if you are asthma, eczema, uh, if you do have those symptoms and then you are displaying the symptoms of EOE, there, it's very much worthwhile getting checked because you've got a much higher chance of having it if you have an atopic disease. Yeah. So in answer to your question about comorbidities, um, there are a number of disease states that have been have been found to be linked with EOE. Right. Uh, inflammatory bowel disease is very common, as I mentioned before, with the Crohn's disease. Um, gastroesophageal, uh, gastroesophageal reflux disease is... Oh, really? It's a home... Yeah, it's a hallmark of of eosinophilic esophagitis. It's actually part of the sorry reflux in itself is is a big part of the diagnosis. Right. But, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. So it's and I'll talk about how we get diagnosed a little bit later. Um, multiple food protein intolerance is really really common in children who have this. So often we'll be seeing babies who are exhibiting those protein intolerance symptoms. And then um, it's often not until they grow out of those food protein intolerances that you'll see what the real EOE reactions are. Um, oh. And I can go into more more about that if you like when yes. we talk about the symptoms. Sure. Uh, S-PIES, have you heard of this one? It's food protein-induced enterocolitis syndrome. Nope. This is, um, <laughs> you know, quite strongly linked with that food protein intolerance. It's a bit but a bit more, uh, I guess, serious or there's a few more um, quite sinister symptoms that come along with that. Um, mast cell activation disorder or mast cell disease, mast cell activation syndrome, mastocytosis, uh, these, while they're not common diseases, they are more common in people who have OE yeah. than they are in the general population. And... Uh, connected tissue diseases also. So things like Ehlers-Danlos syndrome uh, is quite is seen in at a higher proportion in EOE patients. Um, there's also a higher risk of the autoimmune disorder. So you did ask me about that before. Well, well, EOE in itself is not an autoimmune disorder. Uh, ulcerative colitis, systemic sclerosis, MS are all higher in EOE patients. And there is uh, also a higher genetic predisposition for celiac, Crohn's, rheumatoid arthritis. There's a number of wow. other autoimmune conditions. Hashimoto's is also really commonly seen. And I haven't seen a study on this, but just being a part of different networks and support groups for AOE, um, I have heard many, many, many um, mothers of AOE saying that they have Hashimoto's. It's very common. Right. And uh, But then part of me thinks, well, is that due to all the stress of having yeah, a yeah, child that's... or is it an actual <laughs> genetic? Yeah. And a child is EOE or is it actually a genetic? So let's talk about the presenting symptoms and how differently, A, do they manifest in different patients and B, what's different about EOE? How would you suspect EOE? What, alert, what would alert you to say it's EOE rather than, for instance, just reflux? Okay. And I think this is, this is where it's, it's uh, murky and that's why it's so exciting to be able to get this information out to people because AOE, when we look at the management of it, is very different to what we would do in people who are presenting with reflux or babies who are just, you know, colicky. And um, 
yet they can sometimes present in a similar fashion. So when you're t- this disease presents differently at different age in different age groups. Yeah. So in infants, we're looking at um, severe reflux um, generally, and that can be a silent reflux. But in my my um, experience, it's more so the babies that just don't stop throwing up. Um, the, so the vomiting, the food refusal, failure to thrive is huge, and signs of epigastric pain. So these are the babies that are vomiting. They're obviously in pain. Generally, Pulling they're not the sleeping well. They're just stressed all the time. Um, yeah, and failure to thrive, while it is a very, very common symptom and it is the most common, I have seen a number of EOE babies who are, who look well and healthy and are putting on weight and they get dismissed because they look well. And so don't just jump across that one and think it's not AOE because they are thriving. If they're exhibiting the other symptoms, Mm. you still need to consider this as a differential diagnosis. Right. Signs of epigastric pain in an infant. So fussing, pulling their legs up. up. Yeah, Yeah, pulling their legs up and just being distressed. Um, You know, severe Inconsolable. Yes, yes. And... Um, I a lot of them will claw at their chest because they're trying to get to their esophagus, esophagus <sighs> because that's where the pain is. So you'll see I've seen babies who've pulled like drawn blood and pulled skin off their chest because they're trying to get the pain to go away. Oh. Uh, I know it's it's just heartbreaking, and I probably can't think about it too much because I'll get teary. Oh, no, <laughs> well, you, we'll we'll both have a cry. <laughs> I know, I know. Oh. Um, Yes, thankfully I'm far enough past that as a mum that um, you know I've, I'm not living that at the moment. But mm, it is mm. it is awful for parents and obviously the the child going through that. Um, so with the when you get past that sort of toddler stage and you're looking at um, this is when we get past that multiple food protein intolerance. So I'm talking about between about three and five years old. You're looking at still having the reflux issues. Um, heartburn, vomiting, abdominal pain and dysphagia. So this is when the the difficulty swallowing comes in. Um, And that is one a very common sign that in EOE that is not diagnosed because of the esophageal damage, they'll start to get some furrowing or some strictures, concentric rings as they get older. And that difficulty swallowing becomes a big issue if it's not dealt with properly. Now, now, um, can, I, can I just ask, mm-hmm. in a three- to five-year-old, they're not very adept at necessarily isolating exactly where an issue is all the time. So what do they no. say? What do they complain of when they're experiencing yeah. dysphagia? It's interesting, you know, because although it is in the esophagus, more often than not, the complaint I hear is my tummy hurts. Yeah. So it actually, stomach pains are one of the worst things. It's not as much, they do say that they have a sore throat and sometimes things will get stuck, but yeah. tummy pains is one of the most common. And also leg leg pains, restless legs, um, aching legs, um, they can be really big ones and nausea. So right. when you when they're getting that to that age, I feel sick or they go, they'll say, I have stickies in my throat or I feel... They'll feel burning in their throat from the reflux. 
and they'll have tummy pain. And is it and is, actually, is there um, a time limit after a meal that, that it tends to present or can it be any time? Oh, gosh, um, no. That's that's a whole big story I need to tell you. <laughs> but, but, but I just wanted to tell you two more things before I forget them. Yep. Um, yep. Hiccups are a really, really big oh. sign. Um, and this is to do with the reflux, I believe. Yep. But every yep. single AOE child that are, and adult that I've dealt with has issues with hiccups. Um, and it can be from birth. And, um, and the other thing is they want to drink water all the time when they're eating. So it's, I think it's just to help them to be able to swallow when this difficulty swallowing, this dysphagia um, comes along. They just always want to drink water. They need to drink something while they're eating. Right. So if you're seeing all of these signs and you're seeing they need to drink water all the time, which is I think I've seen that in close to 100% of the people I've, I've dealt with who have this. Um, and then as they get older, in adults we're looking at Food impaction and dysphagia are the main symptoms and reflux is, is also a symptom. But because of the way this um, – because this is a new disease and we're only just starting to diagnose it commonly, I think that there are a lot of adults who are now being diagnosed who've had all of these symptoms through their whole life but they're only just now getting diagnosed. So um, – the dysphagia and the food impaction is probably from a lifetime of mismanagement and that's caused all of the damage to the esophagus and now they've got such big um, changes in that esophagus that the food is getting stuck. So they've probably got the concentric rings and the, the strictures and the furrows yeah. that are causing the food impaction. So food impaction so, in the esophagus, not constipation, not, not anywhere down the lower. No, no, no. Right. No, in yep. the esophagus. Yeah. Yeah, dysphagia and food impaction in the esophagus. And um, now you asked me about the reaction and what the time frame is mm. there. So it can be as quickly as 10 minutes or it can take three days. Oh, gosh, okay. So it's, yeah, it's 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 so hard to work out what's going on. And, and when we talk about how we manage this, I'll, I'll go into a little bit about the time frames of trialling things. Given then that there's a massive variation in delay of symptomatology from the culprit food, let's say, how does one begin to even suspect, let alone diagnose it? And how do you diagnose it? Well, generally, generally the people who are suffering these EOE symptoms, uh, it, it's not generally a, I'm just not feeling very well sort of disease. And when you do get triggered, uh, it's quite. It's almost always quite a severe sort of reaction if you've had a decent amount of exposure to that antigen. So I find that the people who are getting diagnosed, they are seeking help and mm. no one's able to give it to them. And right. that is where we were at when, when our daughter was little and that's why I've gone into trying to help people. Um, the diagnostic technique is invasive. You, the only way to diagnose an eosinophilic gastrointestinal disorder is by biopsy. So you need to be scoped, um, esophageal biopsy, and the result has to be 15 or more eosinophils per high-powered field. That's non-responsive to proton pump inhibitor therapy. Ah. So you have to have been on a PPI and prove that it hasn't um, worked for it to be diagnosed as ELA. Right. So they will not scope you 
if the suspected diagnosis is EOE, they will make sure that you're on a PPI for an adequate amount of time in advance of the scope so that they, when they do scope and they find high levels of eosinophils, they can say clearly that you've been on a PPI, it's not working, your eosinophils are still high, and now we're going to diagnose it as EOE. Whereas if you hadn't been on the PPI to begin with, they would just say you have high levels of eosinophils in your esophagus. And right. without knowing whether it's responsive to PPI, there's actually, and this is, now this one's a really big mouthful, so let's see if I can say this without stumbling <laughs> over my words. Um, there is another disease state that is a new disease state that's called proton pump inhibitor responsive esophageal eosinophilia. Oh my just God. <laughs> make it, yeah. So PPI, um, a responsive hey, hey. esophageal eosinophilia, yeah, which is a completely different disease state to EOE. Um, so it's very similar, but it is responsive to PPI therapy. So it will it will present the same, but PPIs will totally uh, put it into remission. Yeah. yeah. So uh, what about differential from, th- from things like, you know, pyloric stenosis and, you know, atrasias and things like that? How, um, in, in infants, is there any? Um, I guess where I'm coming uh, coming from here is where you're getting the fussing infant who projectile vomits. How do you tell that it's mm-hmm. EOE? When do you suspect that it might be EOE versus other conditions? So, I guess what I'll go from is my clinical experience here, and I see, I when it's an infant. Um, generally the parents have been pushed from pillar to post and no one can answer their questions and everyone says, you've just got a fussy baby, put them on some PPIs, they've just got reflux. Mm. Um, but then the difference is these parents are distraught because the the baby is more often than not extremely um, distressed, has the vomiting, the reflux, the um, the stomach pains, and what I didn't mention before is bowel motions, Uh more often than not loose, Um, generally mucus, a lot of mucus is quite common, not always the case, but common, and in the very severe cases, you'll also be seeing blood in the stool. And generally with those those patients, there is a bit more, um, I guess, there's a bit more acceptance that something's wrong yeah. in from um, from the people that they've seen before. When when it's not quite that as severe, um, that's probably the people that naturopaths are going to see. Yep. Uh, people say my baby's fussy and no one can tell me what's wrong. Right. Um, and so what I do is always take a really good family history. So we need to ask about siblings. We need to ask about parents. And quite often they'll say, oh, well, actually my – my husband has trouble swallowing things or, you know, there, there'll be other stories that make you suspect, okay, this could be EOE. Yeah. And um, it, we, when I spoke about the different types of eosinophilic gastrointestinal disorders, you have to also keep in mind that it might not be just a difficulty swallowing. You might just have another family member presenting with lower down gastrointestinal symptoms that seem to be antigen-driven. Um, because you might have one sibling with EOE and another sibling with eosinophilic colitis. Right. So the symptoms would be different or a parent with one or the other. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, you sort of need to think a bit broad about it and then bring it back. Okay, so you've gotten a, di- mm-hmm. a positive diagnosis. You now know that it's EOE. I would, I would suspect that you'd 
within EOE, you've got a vast variance of presentations, obviously, as, of we've, as we've discussed, yeah. but also what they react to. Is that right? Oh, yes. Yes, definitely. So um, pre- presentation is going to depend on how few or how many things that people are reacting to and whether they're exposed to it, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, the very, the more minor, they might just have, say, you know, eggs might be the thing they react to or milk might be the thing they react to. And those are the adults, I think, who just get diagnosed really late in life because they go, oh, I've just always felt funny when I have eggs and so I stopped having them. And then they might have brought it back into their diet and they get the symptoms again. Right. Um, so that, you know, with the antigen, with with the antigens, you could have just one thing or you could react to chemicals, foods, environmentals, and those are the really severe cases. And it's trying to work out what on earth they're reacting to mm, and get gosh. out, get them out. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, oh, and then you, you asked me about um, siblings. Yes, so that's what I was going to touch on before. So I have seen many times um, in families, specifically in siblings, I've seen one child who they may both be severe cases of EOE mm. and you might have one child who only has three or four foods and one of those foods is rice. Yeah. But the sibling rice might be the thing that they react to the, the most. So it's very individual. Gosh, yeah. It's very, very individual. Even given the same the family same diagnosis. Oh, my God. Yeah, you may have. And and that's a sort of an important point to touch on is there's really no rhyme or reason to what people react to with this disease. Mm. And I've learned to sort of, although I do work a lot with people who have chemical sensitive, food chemical sensitivities and you know, I look at salicylates and I look at amines and histamines and glutamates and um, I find that with EOE, it all needs to be just thrown out the window and sometimes I'll start with that if I don't have an EOE diagnosis or I just have a, you know, a, a child that's not quite right. Mm. But when I when I start looking at EOE, you need to just go, all right, what's going to be the biggest win with what we're going to try here? Because I've seen... I've seen people who have the worst reactions to all the things that as naturopaths we get taught are the lowest reactive foods like pear and rice and, you know, all those things that, oh, no one's going to react to those. They'll be fine. Um, but then you might see some, you know, my, my daughter, for example, she she was that baby. She reacted so terribly to pear and to rice and to apple and everything until she wow. was two. But then the foods that she got first, avocado was one of them and mango was one of them. And they're things that, you know, are highly reactive for a lot of people who are sensitive. Mm. So you yeah, you really need to sort of put a different put a different hat on when yeah. you're looking at these patients because it's not going to fit in the box that you expect it to fit in. So I, I think you're gonna um, need I think you're gonna need practitioners who want to you know, learn about this to really, it, it, it almost is really taking off your dogmas, putting them in a box mm-hmm. right beside your table and putting on your detective <laughs> hat and saying, I am now Sherlock Absolutely. Holmes. And, you know, what, what might seem mil- minuscule in patient A could be the biggest win in patient B. It just seems like that everything can be topsy-turvy. Exactly. Exactly. And it's sometimes very, very hard to work out what's going on, especially when they have a lot of things that they react to. Uh, And that's why, you know, I think we spoke about, um, you know, maybe we'll talk about um, the diet, like the food elimination Mm. thing, 
the biggest one of the biggest ways to work through this. But obviously, when you're doing a lot of food elimination, you need to come in with something else to help out and give in nutritional. Yeah, so this um, is this is what I was going to ask you about. What is the standard mm-hmm. medical treatment, and how how effective is it? Given that it's a topsy turvy disease that can react to so many different things, even within a family. You know, there's no. I could well, I could understand there's no yeah. standard treatment. Well, if we look at um, medical treatment, so let me just tell you what the um, pharmaceutical interventions yep. are. So, the main pharmaceutical interventions are PPIs, obviously, because that's the hallmark of AOE is the reflux. So we're looking at um, PPIs, H2 antagonists, so Zantac, Grenadine. We're also looking at uh, uh, budesonide oral suspension. So this is what's also known as a pulmacort slurry. Um, We're looking at um, the steroids, so the swallows, fluticasone, so that's flexotide or flovent. then in the more severe cases, we – oh, sorry, I'll just tell you about that. So when I say swallowed, um, so it's an inhaler like an asthma pump. Mm. Um, and what they do is rather than uh, inhale, breathe in when it's squirted into the mouth, they actually swallow it. Right. So you breathe it and you swallow it rather than inhale it. So you spray it into the mouth and swallow it so it hits the esophagus. Gotcha. Right, right, right. Um, And with the pulmonary court slurry – that is one that they, the the, the, um, the doctor who invented this pulmacort slurry um, decided that mixing it with Splenda was a really good idea. And so um, they mix the Splenda with the pulmacort and swallow it. So it, it's viscous and it, and it adheres to the esophagus. Do we want to and, talk um, about this? <laughs> <laughs> well, all I will say about this is that it is equally as effective to use something like honey. <laughs> so let's just try with honey. <laughs> Um, or even like a well-strained apple sauce or pear sauce, um, something that's going to adhere to the esophagus or like at least have some sort of um, contact time with the esophagus. Um, yes, I definitely advise against the pool. So you just said a pear sauce and you said like your daughter reacted to pears. So Yeah, so you would have to use what, what was safe for that, yeah. that person. So, yeah. yeah, you'd have to find what was safe for them and if nothing was safe... Um, Yes, that's you, you just have to find something. So if they have one safe food, you have to try and put it in the food and 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 see if you could get it to adhere, get it to the right consistency to adhere it to the esophagus on the way down. I, I know this is um, backtracking a little bit, but mm-hmm. I'm just I'm thinking about. And she's an old colleague. She went on to do medicine after doing naturopathy, um, and as a project, which I think remains unfinished because of funding issues, um, she, her. Her project, if you like, was um, eosinophilic asthma. Now, I'm just seeing so uh, many overlaps here. Yeah. Well, interestingly, <laughs> the medications that are used for EOE are asthma medications. Yeah, that's right. Because, yeah, yeah, exactly. And there are no, at, at this stage, there are no uh, medications that are specifically for EOE. Yeah. They haven't, they haven't, we don't understand the disease process enough to be able to develop something. There's lots of trials going on in the United States. There's a in Cincinnati at the Cincinnati Children's Hospital. There is a centre for eosinophilic disorders, and they do the most research of anyone in the world. Um, so I want to go over there <laughs> and check it out and talk to everyone. Hopefully one day. Um, 
But yeah, they are doing a lot of that sort of research. So it's more the disease uh, pathophysiology. It's it's about looking at how to treat it and find an appropriate treatment yeah. that is just for EOE and very specific for EOE. Um, but with other treatments, uh, the other things that they are using at the moment are mast cell stabilizers because often um, anaphylaxis is a comorbidity, you know, with the atopic disease that we were talking about earlier. Um, so cotodafin is a mast cell stabilizer. Um, chromalin sodium or Nalcom, it used to be called Intel Spintax. But then that was actually taken off the Australian market, and now it's um, it needs to be compounded as yeah. a um, chromalin sodium. I remember Intel spin caps for asthma in this sort of it was almost yeah, like an old exactly. honking horn, um, and yeah, you had exactly. this and they had this vicious needle that would go up inside and <laughs> pierce the capsule from one end to the other, and then you'd inhale the Intel up through your nose. So this was um, Intel spin caps that weren't. You would actually um, they now they will put it into a baby's bottle. Right. They'll put the yeah, so they swallow it. So that's my, the main medications that are being used. And um, with the elimination, with the food side of things in in terms of treatment, um, there's a top eight elimination diet, and that's the one I mentioned before that uh, has been shown to have a ninety percent remission rate for. Um, for EOE when people stick to a strict top eight elimination diet. But like I said, I'm not convinced that that 90% outside of clinical trials is necessarily accurate because I think people are reacting to a lot more than just what's in the top eight for, right. the, for the more severe cases. Yeah, that's right. So the top eight, um, I'm sure most people know, it's sometimes referred to as a top six as well. Um, it's the same thing. They just term thing, you know, term things differently within that eight. So it's milk, eggs, wheat fish, peanuts, tree nuts, soy and shellfish is what the top eight consists of. Um, and then there's also the RPAH elimination diet, which a lot of people with EOE do follow and, and get varied success with. So that's low chemicals, so let's say amines, glutamates. Um, and like I said, you know, I haven't seen that be the be all and end all and it, it does help some people, but I'm not convinced that it's purely because of the chemicals. I think it's more because you're eliminating a lot of the foods that they were reacting to regardless of the chemical content. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because the RPAH elimination diet is very, it's very full on. There's a lot of things taken out. And so I think it's really, you know, you're taking out pretty much most of your top eight and then you, you're doing the low chemical as well. The main thing for infants especially and for children is the elemental formula and like I said in a lot of people that you are going to see in clinic or naturopaths will see in clinic um, you're probably going to see the more severe cases and these are people who are at the their wits end and the they're probably having reactions to multiple multiple foods mm -hmm. and so um, at that point or and a lot of them will also have that multiple food protein intolerance so they will be advised to go on an elemental formula. And if if you're seeing um, a very severe case of this and there's failure to thrive, um, what I really urge you to do is, although the elemental formula, when you look at what's in it, will horrify you from your naturopath perspective, um, you need to remember that this is like, you know, meat and three veg. It's, it has everything in there that, um, a human being needs to survive if it's taken in the right 
uh, doses. Right. And so when you're dealing with infants in particular and children who are in such a bad state because they're so reactive to everything that they cannot um, firstly absorb anything because they're so inflamed, but they're reactive to all their foods, you need to remember that the, element, the elemental formulas are going to keep them alive when nothing else is. And I think that's a really, like if there's a few things that I would love to impress upon other practitioners through this podcast, it's to be able to have empathy and look mm. at this in a different way because you'll see parents who themselves have seen naturopaths and are really into natural therapies and are equally horrified about the fact that they need to put this formula into their child as their sole source of nutrition. Um and so what they need at that point is for a practitioner to be able to say, it's okay, I understand, you're in a really tough position and this is going to keep your child alive while we work out what they're reacting to, while right. we do, while yeah. we help to heal their gut, while we get them well enough to be able to have enough foods to then get off the formula. Yeah. And it's a really important to be able to do that, to be able to see that this is not a quick net, this is definitely not going to be a quick fix. It's going to be long-term and if you can be patient and do things without trying to just pull the rug out from under them, you'll get really great results in a lot of patients. Well done. I've got to say though, that's going to require not just your your true Sherlock Holmes detective hat but also a, a true dedication to uncovering what's going on in these sort of patients. Uh, so well done to you, I've got to say. So, Thank you. So Thank with, you. with regards to elemental formulas, are there, some, are there some that work better than others? I know that seems like tarring everything with the same brush, but do you find a variance? And I guess where I'm going here is this. I don't know if this was the case because I never got the diagnosis. All I heard was failure to thrive. I just heard some years ago of a naturopath who was getting amazing results with a particular child who just could not tolerate the totally synthesized um, um, elemental formula. So there is a there's a hydrolyzed rice based formula that is on the market now. I think it only came out last year. That may work for some people, but it is not an amino acid-based formula. It's not a free amino acid-based formula, which is what the other elemental formulas are. So there are a number of other elemental formulas. Um, There's at least 10 or 15 that I know of in Australia, and they all have slightly different ingredients. So it's really a matter of trying to work through which one is the best for the individual because they're all different. I guess where I was going there is um, with regards to proteins, if you do have a totally synthesized formula and you have that um, thing that happens where allergies can be mediated by a haptin, like a a, a non-protein mediator, do you get people reacting to the elemental formulas? People definitely react to the elemental formulas. Right. Um, And I'm not sure if that's the... That's the mechanism, but I do know that because of slightly different ingredients, so some of them might have gotcha. more of a, they might have some soy, others might be corn, others might have coconut, <sighs> right. and it, it's going to depend on that. And so I always think that it's more that side of, of what's going on um, in, as to whether they react to the individual formulas. Yep. But the, the concentration of the formulas can cause reactions in itself as well, but I think 
I won't go into that because I know we're probably getting a bit short on time. And it's a long explanation. So, so what about things like natural treatments? What what's available and how well do they work? There are no natural treatments or pharmaceutical treatments indicated for EOE. So there's nothing that's proven that if you have EOE, this is the thing that will work for you. Um, I have worked out a number of different uh, different things that work from a naturopathic perspective, but. While I say that, they may work for one person and cause an enormous, tremendous, horrible reaction in another person. Mm. So I'm really hesitant to, to list specific things because um, I'm also very particular about which brand of things I use because there might be slightly different ingredients and how I go about it. So I think that um, I would love to go through a very big explanation of exactly what to do from a clinical perspective when someone sits in front of you and they have EOE or suspected EOE how I would go about it, but I'm, I'm just hesitant to give that um, information without being able to explain it fully. Because Absolutely agree. As you can imagine, this could do a lot of, it could do a lot of damage yeah, to a lot of people. Yeah, it cause a lot of heartache. Yep, absolutely yeah, agree with you. No yeah. problems, Nicole. What about the long-term effects of EOE and indeed the, you know, the prognosis? Is there any risk of um, sinister things happening in the future? So long-term, this isn't a disease that there is a cure for. There's, you can go into remission if it's managed uh, well, if the, the allergens are removed and you can identify the allergens, or if you use pharmaceutical medications that that can get some people into remission. So it is, to, at this stage, a lifelong disease. Um, and the, the consequences of that are if it is not managed well, you can get a lot of damage to the esophagus, which can have... Um, you know, as you can imagine, be carrying on effects. If there's severe enough damage, it can result in tube feeding, so nasogastric or peg tubing um, for feed. Sounds like I'm feeding a horse (laughs) for food. (laughs) (laughs) What about about something like Barrett's esophagitis that's a precancerous condition? Is there that risk? It is... I believe that there is a higher a higher um, incidence of Barrett's esophagus in EOE, but I also think that... um, Oh gosh, I don't want to say the wrong thing, but I, I, rem- I feel like I remember reading an article saying that um, there is a high diagnosis of EOE in people who have actually presented for Barrett's esophagus. Right. Yeah. But it's maybe been misdiagnosed. Yep. Earlier. Yeah. Now you and earlier I, I've got to, I've got to say something that we didn't mention before. But you and I were speaking off air about this, and that is about the biopsy, the issues with biopsy, and. Oh, yeah. 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 Can that's, we just mention that for our really listeners? Yeah. Okay. So in a nutshell, um, the biopsy is the only way of diagnosing and, and often to see if the treatment is working, um, the clinician or the, the specialist will recommend um, trying a medication, biopsying, then trying a medication, then biopsying again about six months later. Right. And the issue with that is that the eosinophils cluster in the esophagus. So you may take a biopsy and get a diagnosis of no EOE. This is totally clear. It's fine. And then you might do a biopsy two centimetres away and get a severe case of EOE. So in my mind, this diagnostic technique is very flawed because you're not really getting an accurate indication of A, how bad the EOE is and B, whether or not the medication or food elimination 
um, intervention is working because mm. it's really all going to depend on where exactly you take that biopsy from. Right. And although um, eosinophils um, clustering can cause white plaques in the esophagus, they've actually proven that the white plaques aren't necessarily the highest level <laughs> of where the differences are. And <laughs> those white plaques may not actually have lots of higher levels or over the 15 per high power field. Right. So it's just fraught with, <laughs> um, yes, misdiagnosis written all over it or yeah. underdiagnosis written all over it. So it's really tricky and they are, a lot of the research is looking into less invasive, more accurate diagnostic techniques. Gotcha. So where can practitioners learn more about this? Indeed, I have to ask you to please publicise something that you did in the NHAA journal, Nicole. Oh, uh, oh, that was a few years ago. Yeah, I, I did. I wrote an article about the inflammatory mechanisms in ELE, and I was looking at the herbal anti-inflammatory mechanisms that may match. Um, so I was really just looking at the, the inflammatory mechanisms and and seeing which of our herbs may work. So I think that was in 2013 that was published in NHAA. Um, so, but having said that, I would really like to make sure people, um, I caution people that that doesn't, I actually don't use those herbs necessarily in people because, um, I wouldn't use ethanolic extracts. I wouldn't, you know, there's lots of reasons why people might react to those herbs. So it was more of a, hmm, I wonder if this would work and without sort of having a lot of, um, opportunity to be safe around those trials, I wouldn't sort of recommend that people go out and use those herbs that I yes. mentioned in the article. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fine. I'm putting well, lots of disclaimers in this story. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's good for appropriate treatment. And I think something that is so, I mean, this is truly a personalized program. You cannot expect any form of protocol I hate that word, but um, particularly mm. to do with natural medicines. I can't stand it. Guidelines, maybe, but protocols, no. But um, no. given this, you know, your interest in it, and, and you mentioned the Cincinnati Children's Hospital, are there yes. any other centres perhaps in Australia that are interested in this, doing any research? Um, the RPAH in Sydney, Sydney. Do, has done some research in the AOE. Um, I I know of a couple of other PhD students. I don't know them personally, but I have seen a little bit of research in Australia. But it's not, it's not a big, it's not a big research field in Australia. And my research that I am, I'm doing my master's project on at the moment. I'm looking more at qualitative research, so it's it is mixed methods. But I'm really looking at how it's impacting families what kind of complementary medicine people are using for AOE because I know that there are people using it but no one's actually done that research. Right. So yep. I'm trying to find out what people are what people are using and, and also I'm looking at satisfaction with care and I'm seeing um because of the feedback I get is that uh people with this disease are really loving the empathy and the care that they get from the complementary medicine practitioners. Um and that's you know that's really it's a really nice thing for our profession. But now we need to, we all need to understand the disease more so that we can yes. offer that, um, that level of help. And look, we're not, we're not going to fix everyone. We're not going to be experts in it um, because, gosh, little is known about it. But in the end, if it means that someone who's distressed and sitting across, sitting in your, your clinic just needs to be told that you believe them and you're listening to them and mm. you care for them, 
um, it, you'd be surprised how far that goes because even when you can't actually give something, just giving that empathy makes a huge, huge difference. Well, I'm actually, I'm actually, it sounds flippant, but I'm actually saying this seriously. Just giving that empathy might be able to mitigate um, the mother's Hashimoto's if there's a preponderance to that. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I, I think that. Yeah, like that's like not a crazy thing to say. I think that that the impact this has on the families and caregivers is huge. Mm. And um, we didn't touch on that in this discussion, but I guess any of my friends and, and family and fellow students, uh, you know, that I, I've studied with are probably like, oh, yes, we've heard all about that. <laughs> because it is a, it's a crazy hard, you know, a few few years of just awful, awful um being a parent and not being able to um, help your child when they're in a really bad way and not having any solutions is, is very, very tough. Massive sleep deprivation, yeah. big stress financially. You know, there's a lot There's a lot to it. It's more than just symptoms and trying to give a, a pill or a herb. It's about trying to look after everyone in the family and make sure everyone's functioning on all cylinders to be able to cook good meals for the rest of the family and get enough sleep and you know, look after themselves as yeah. well as the, the, the child who's, who's um, affected. And I do talk about children a lot with this, but I do work with adults as well. I just, you know, I guess my heart is with the children because I've, my daughter's still quite little. So um, I'm, I'm glad yeah. that sufferers of EOE will be able to access um, FX Medicine podcasts and get, if nothing else, some, well, definitely some empathy from you, but some information to be able to go and search further and get some answers um, from the appropriate yeah. specialist in the in that area. So, Nicole Hannon, I thank you dearly from my heart to, for taking our listeners and indeed me through the complex issues of EOE today. Thank you very much. You're so welcome. Thank you very much for having me. It's wonderful to get this message out. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. What if you could hang out in an epic location with an awesome, like-minded practitioner tribe, having extraordinary experiences with a community of leaders, innovators and visionaries, all sharing their wisdom to move our profession forward? It all starts with the Naturepreneur Experience, a professional development conference like no other for naturopaths, nutritionists, herbalists and practitioners. Check out NatX2019 at tamiguest.com for more details.